Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. When you watch this film happen, you don't take it as, oh, this guy don't know what he's doing. You take it as, wow, this is real. So I believe we always had that. We always had that thing where we connect as viewers to, to things that aren't perfect. See, too many documentaries are overproduced now. I'm, I filmed that whole film, Brothers, my new iPhone documentary with the phone in my hand. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 53. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. By now, even if you've only listened to a handful of episodes of this podcast, you're probably pretty acquainted with how I first got started in documentary. It was on a feature doc called Bomb Hunters, a project in which we spent six months filming in the country of Cambodia. It was a film that, that took a look at post-war effects to a society, in particular its use of UXO and cluster munitions. What you may not have known about this project was the tiny size of our crew. It was essentially myself, the director, and our fixer translator. The director shot the film, and I was responsible for all of the sound. I would also be hired afterwards to edit the film, but, but in terms of production, it was literally a three-person crew. Now, I remember not only enjoying the challenge of doing a film with a pint-sized crew like this, but I was also really proud of what we were able to achieve. To this day, there's no amount of convincing that could make me believe that a much larger crew could have gotten the type of story that we did. And certainly not in a place like Cambodia, where just the mere sight of two dudes roaming around the countryside with a large camera and a boom mic it was always something we had to work against when we were filming on the dock. Of course, working at a three-person crew was not without its challenges as well. Saying that one person shot the video, one person recorded audio, and one person did translation work, that was really doing ourselves a disservice. We, we certainly all wore a multitude of hats at all times. We were wrangling cords. Yes, in fact, I was tethered to the back of the camera back then. Uh, we were toting a, a heavy tripod setup around. We were sometimes working with interview setups. We were switching out and logging mini DV tapes. We were negotiating taxi and tuk-tuk rides. We were trying to stay alive by negotiating areas marked uh, with the dreaded red skull and crossbones signs that indicate the uncleared landmine areas in a place like Cambodia. The days were long 14-hour days, and, and, and so it wasn't always easy to remain sharp, focused, and vigilant. And, and so there were the occasional mo moto dust-ups on the road, uh, losing a boom pole off the back of a bus, getting sick from, from tainted food. But it was the experience of a lifetime, and, and, and like I said, the resulting documentary film was something that, that uh, to this day, I'm very proud of. But then a handful of years later, I decided to give it a go entirely on my own, in the mountains of Nepal. Just myself on camera, 
just myself doing sound, just myself for really just about everything. I did, of course, hire a, a mountain guide who also acted as translator, and I, and I had a couple of porters that, that helped carry my camera and camping gear. But in terms of actual film crew, it was just myself. This was another film, of course, I've talked ad hoc about in the show, and I'm certainly going to spare you from having to listen to that tedium again. But, but I bring all of this up for a reason. Later on in our shared conversation with a doc industry guest, we're going to have a conversation with a doc filmmaker who recently has been making a name for himself by touting the advantages of only shooting with his iPhone. He calls it out-of-the-pocket filmmaking. And for today's opening volley, if you will, I'm going to share a bit of my experiences shooting documentary in some similar minimalist fashion, albeit quite not quite as minimal as, as say, shooting your film with just your iPhone. And more specifically, I want to take a look at five advantages to going solo as a doc filmmaker. Okay, let's dive right into our list of five advantages to going solo as a doc filmmaker. And I do just want to say that this is not like a, a top five list as much as it's it's an exploration of some reasons why, why one might want to go solo with their doc project. It is also worth knowing that, that I'm really specifically talking about the actual production of the film, really just the actual shooting of the film, not the poster distribution process that happens after principal photography. And I will also I'll openly admit that for every one of these advantages that I list out, you could certainly make an argument that it can also be a disadvantage. But that's the case I, I find with almost every aspect of doc filmmaking. There's little right and wrong in a way when it comes to things like story choices, budget decisions, camera gear selections. As far as I'm concerned, there are only pros and cons to your choices. So with that, let's discuss five advantages to going solo. Number one, you only have to worry about yourself. This is probably the most obvious one that jumps right out at you. You don't have to worry about anyone else in a crew other than yourself. After all, you are the crew. You don't have to worry about a producer telling you that, that what you're doing is not going to sell. You don't have to concern yourself with the minutia of, of covering costs of everyone's meals or actually making the meals happen. There are no personalities other than your subjects, of course, that you have to be worried about. It's just you, your gear, and your subject. When I was working in the mountains of Nepal, it actually helped greatly that I didn't have to be worrying about other crew members and their, their dietary needs or their concerns about trekking at higher elevations or, or being able to do your business, if you will, in an outhouse that's basically exposed to the world. Um, of course, I was always concerned with the welfare of my fixer and my porters, but, but that's different from having to be concerning yourself with the welfare of, of other actual crew members. Shooting in the mountains of Nepal all by myself also allowed me creatively to not, not be worried about anyone else's input. It was very liberating to be out there with a camera and just filming whatever I wanted, however I wanted, and, and for that matter, whenever I wanted. Number two, it's low impact. You can approach your filming on the DL, the down low. It's you, your camera, a boom mic, maybe an additional lob if you're shooting interviews or, or following a subject around. And then that's probably it. I mean, you'll probably be wearing a small backpack or, or, 
or how about this a fanny pack that one's that one's for my listeners in the UK and Aussie they love the word fanny but really other than that it's just you floating around like a bumblebee if you will I found this particularly advantageous in a place like Nepal or, or Cambodia or Haiti where I might be filming in rural villages where, where I'm the only white person maybe they've ever seen, as I alluded to earlier. Particularly in these types of sensitive situations, it's obtrusive enough that, that, that my presence is there. That alone is having an impact on my film. My mere presence is having an effect on what may or may not transpire in front of my camera. And that's the other part of this. Most likely, if you're going at it alone, you're not going to have a massive camera setup, right? That's generally been the case for me in the scenarios like, uh, like I just described. Not only did I, did I not want to be toting around a large video camera and, and say, you know, a bunch of lenses and batteries, but, but I wanted to be using something far smaller in terms of the camera. So, so this would help draw a lot less attention to what I was doing. Just before going on a shoot to to, to Haiti, I just purchased um, the the Canon 7D, which had at that time had recently come out. I didn't buy the camera for for this particular shoot, so so I didn't actually end up using it very much in Haiti. Instead, opting for for my um, the Sony V1U video camera because I was I was I was very used to using that camera. And and but a funny thing happened when I did pull the DSLR out. I noticed it got a lot less attention. And that people pretty quickly forgot about it. They they just thought I was taking pictures when when in actuality I was I was rolling on, on on test footage. This certainly seemed to lend itself to some more honest and real interactions on camera. And that was definitely duly noted for for uh, for shoots later on where I would where I would uh, go out with the DSLR. So yeah, keeping your crew to one person and keeping your gear on the minimal side it definitely helps give a low impact on the environment you're shooting in. Number three, you're the only person who touches your gear. How about that one? Sounds terrible, doesn't it? But it's kind of true. I can't tell you how many times I've had other shooters using my gear where, where say, I'm directing on something, and, and I find myself irked by the, the carefree attitude with which they're using my, my gear. I, I can only imagine what rental houses must feel like. But, but that's probably part of the reason they have such, such good insurance coverage. I'm, I'm always amazed by this one. Um, we used to occasionally rent out our Canon C300 Mark II when we first got it only the people that we knew and trusted and 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 rental insurance was was a requisite but but i remember that that i was helping out some friends that i'd worked with commercially for a few years and and they were putting together their first short film they'd raised a little bit of money from kickstarter or indiegogo one of the crowdfunding sources and they were calling in their favors to crew members that they'd worked with in the portland area and I gave them a big break on the rental of our camera kit. I knew their DP pretty well, and I trusted the guys uh, who were making the film. However, after their weekend of shooting, when I got the camera package back, I was appalled at how haphazardly they'd packed my camera. And maybe I shouldn't say how they'd packed my camera. I don't by any means blame my colleagues who had rented the camera. I'm sure they assumed what I had assumed that the DP would take good care of the gear and, and pack it up nicely and return it the way that he'd found it. Sadly, this was not the case. And, and, and honestly, that was the last time we rented out the Canon. It just wasn't, it just wasn't worth it. I'm getting a little off track here, but I, I, I wanted to illustrate how when you're the only one responsible for your gear, 
You don't have to worry about the condition that it's going to be in the next day when you go to, you know, say shoot. You're the only person handling that gear. You're making sure that your batteries are fully charged. You're putting media cards in a place where where you cannot only easily get to them, but but be, because you'd label them, say, for the shoot, uh, you won't have to worry about erasing any cards by accident. You also can trust that when you hook up the lav, that the, the frequency, say the, it's a wireless lav, the frequency it's going to be is going to be where you want it to be at. And, and that because you'd already tested the audio gear prior to the shoot, you weren't going to have to mess with it too much when you're shooting an interview. Because, you know, as we all know, when, when we're doing the solo thing, we have a zillion jobs to be juggling all at the same time. So, so we need peace of mind that our gear is where it needs to be, and therefore easily accessible when you need it, and that it's all, quite frankly, functioning properly. If you're the only person using your gear, you'll minimize the types of things that you don't have control over. Number four, no one knows your vision like you do. It's true, right? No one knows your vision like you do. I mean, you've been thinking on, meditating on, processing this doc project story of yours for for, for a long time now. And and, and while you've got your, let's say your elevator pitch, it's down to a T, it's still not always easy to be able to translate this um, as a vision to your crew. It, it actually makes me think of working with the DP or two. And, and these are people that I know and, and I trust and love dearly. And we have good personal and professional relationships. Uh, because I consider myself a director slash DP and because I've often shot a bunch of my own stuff over the years, it's kind of understood that there may be times where I'm picking up the camera and doing some shooting myself. First of all, I love to shoot. Secondly, as as camera people, we all have our own unique styles. We have things that uh, that we're good at shooting, and, and other areas we're not so great at shooting. For instance, no one would hire me to shoot food porn. They they'd hire my friend and colleague Brian Kimmel to do that. Uh, but but they might hire me to shoot a conversation handheld because. I seem to have a knack for this sort of thing. I'm able to anticipate conversations. I like to get in the flow of what's happening. And and I'm not afraid to get up tight and close when the situation calls for it. Actually, it, it, it reminds me of a time when I was shooting on a doc project in Southeast Asia. My DP, who was a good friend and, and someone that I've worked with many times over the years, uh, uh, one of the things that he truly excels at is the art of shooting the interview. Taking an environment and setting it up and lighting it, and oftentimes, uh, mind you, working with minimal instrumentation, lighting instrumentation, and, and making these beautiful-looking interviews that are they're not only uh, evocative of the personality that we're shooting, but really evocative of the film project as a whole as well. I myself, I would never try and duplicate what he does. It is a true talent, and he is amazing at it. However... Put him in a setting where he has to follow action and things become a little less fluid for him. I, I can't explain the reasoning, but but knowing what I know about him, I find him to be a, a true technical whiz when it comes to cameras and operating them. He's like the Eric Clapton of camera operation, whereas I'm much more kind of feeling oriented. I'm, I'm kind of gut level when it comes to to uh, my camera operation. I'm less technical. I really go with the flow of a given situation. I'm like the, the ace freely of camera operation, if you will. Yeah, think on that for a minute. In any case, 
I remember well a time towards the the end of a long day of shooting, and, and this may account actually for some of what would end up transpiring. And, and we were shooting some footage at a very small, intimate concert venue. This was actually outside at the back of a restaurant club. Um, it was small, and the crowd was really packed tightly into this small area. The band was was practically right in front of you. And my DP kept trying to cover this from afar with a longer lens. And I, I kept insisting that he get some tighter shots. And, and maybe I wasn't explaining myself well enough. That's entirely possible. I, I was probably trying to beat uh, 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 lightly around the bush, if you will. Um, but, but getting long lens shots from the back, it was not going to give the intimate and close-knit feel that I was going for. So as politely as I could, I, I asked for the camera, I hopped into the crowd, and, and I did what I do best and, and what I love to do. Dance with the camera. Follow action. My, my, my point in all of this is, is that when it's just you and your subjects, you get to make and employ your vision in whichever way you should see fit. There are no other egos, just your own, of course, <laughs> that you have to worry about. Uh, you get to do the dance with the camera, and no one gets to say squat about how you're dancing. And last but certainly not least is number five, which is it's cheap. You can sincerely cut down on your costs if you don't have a crew. And let's be honest here, it's often the reason that we decide to tackle dock projects all on our own in the first place. We simply don't have the financing to be able to hire any kind of crew. We often need what little funds we do have to pay for things like travel costs and accommodations, meals, or, or petrol. Sadly, sometimes in our films, these costs take precedence over a crew position that you might be able to at least, at least ad adequately do yourself. Now, something that I'd like for you to make note of here is that when you're applying for grants for your doc, it's wise not to only include yourself as the crew. You might suppose that funding organizations might be more liable to cough up some dough, you know, to help the starving artist who, who can't afford to hire a sound person, if, if, for instance. But, but I've heard from representatives from some of these institutions that they say that, unfortunately, it can work against you, giving the impression that it's just you working on the film. For, for them, even if only subliminally, it gives the impression that others don't believe in, in the film that you're trying to do. As if the fact that you don't have other crew members listed for a film, it suggests that whatever you're filming, it's not worthy of someone else's time and energy. Oftentimes, um, what I do, if I'm budgeting on a film where, where I have a tiny crew of, 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 say, just a DP or a sound person, and maybe they're doing it for free or for half rates, I'll make sure to indicate this as in-kind uh, donations or in-kind contributions on my budget sheet. Um, that way, the grant institution can, can not only see that others are indeed attached to my project, but that they believe in it strongly enough that they're willing to give their time for free or for little charge. So I guess what, what I'm trying to say here is that even if you, you, you won't intend to use the monies for a crew, um, it might be a good idea to always budget for one. Okay, let's quickly revisit the five advantages to going solo one more time. Number one, you only have to worry about yourself. Number two, it's low impact. Number three, you're the only person who touches your gear. Number four, no one knows your vision like you do. And, and number five, it's cheap. 
I'll bet that you guys have some thoughts and ideas that you can add to this. I'm sure that other doc lifers would also like to hear about them. So I encourage you to either leave some comments in the show notes for this episode or leave some comments in the TDL community Facebook group, or you can always email me directly at chris at barongfilms.com. And speaking of emails, this week we will be foregoing our usual Doc Life or Community Question of the Week segment, a segment that would normally be happening now. But in, and instead, after a quick break, we're going to get right into our conversation with veteran Doc filmmaker Jack Ballow, who recently decided to try his hand at doing a project with nothing more than his iPhone. But before we do that, I want to make mention of a special announcement that will be coming up next week. Not only will we be doing a similar wrap-up sort of best of the year in TDL episode like we did last year, but I'll be making an exciting announcement that is set to broaden the inspiration, information, and network that has always been at the heart of the documentary life. So you won't want to miss our end of the year wrap-up episode that comes out next week. All right, next up, our conversation with Mr. Jack Ballow. Over the last few years, as we've met and connected with more and more doc lifers, we've been asked what the most comprehensive doc filmmaking course out there is. The truth is, we didn't believe there was one. There are plenty of videos and some courses that walk you through some technical aspects of filmmaking and workshops that cover some of the business aspects, but there was nothing that specifically took the doc filmmaker through the whole actual doc filmmaking journey, both creative and business, from A to Z. That is, until we created one. The Documentary Academy is the only all-in-one online documentary film production course that actually starts from the beginning of your film's journey, from story conception, through pre-production and actual production, to post-production, and through to the promotions, marketing, and distribution of your film. The Academy will help you make your most successful documentary film by guiding you on the journey from conception to launch. But don't just take our word for it. Have a look for yourself by going to thedocumentarylife.com academy and discover everything that the Academy has to offer, including a video that takes you inside the Academy for a look around. The Documentary Academy has already greatly helped others realize their power and potential as doc filmmakers. Why not be the next person who brings an awesome documentary film to life? Head on over to thedocumentarylife.com academy today, and we'll see you there. We are joined today by fellow documentary filmmaker, Jack Ballow. Jack, welcome to the Documentary Life podcast. Glad to have you aboard today. Thank you, Chris. Glad to be here. Now, I have I have come to know you from a few of my listeners who have pointed out your, your blog, um, the DIY documentary blog. And the more research I've done, Jack, the more I've, I've really kind of come to realize um, that you really seem synonymous with this idea of DIY. And so I, I'd love to hear from you, uh, you know, how and why did this DIY approach really start to evolve, really start to evolve into a thing for you? Well, the way it started was that I realized that, you know, when you watch a documentary and you see the credits roll and all of the amount of people involved and there's a lot of money involved with documentaries, I knew that was something I didn't want to do. I was in video production for 20 years. I knew how to do camera. I knew how to do sound. Yeah. Uh, I would learn how to produce. I knew how to edit. Um, so 
I wanted to just uh, figure out how to do these things myself so I could uh, wouldn't have to spend the money because I didn't have the money. You know, you start your first documentary, you just do something you should anyway, do something relatively simple. Um, and, and, and you don't want to, you're not going to have money for that kind of project. At least I didn't anyway. Yeah. 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 What was that first documentary film experience? What was it like for you? Well, like I said, I had the background in video production Yeah. and I went, I ended up going to the Dominican Republic, a (laughs) friend, (laughs) a woman who was, who was doing some really good work out there. Um, charity work asked me to go along, kind of follow what she did while I was out there with her. I met this guy named Elio, and we filmed him for a couple hours. It was a nice segment, but I was really moved by this guy and wanted to. Uh, I never left my mind how impressed I was what what he, what he was doing. So I eventually went out there uh, on my own mm-hmm. and met. You know, I got in touch with him first, and I said I wanted to do a day in the life with you. The reason <laughs> I, <laughs> which is a great way by the by the way to get started in filmmaking. Right. You know you. Start in the morning with somebody, and you go to the end. And right. Person, it, 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 you, there's a there, there, there's a there's a timeline there, right? So there's you know there's a there's a beginning and there's an end to it, and you have to make that story happen within the day. Yeah. 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 And the viewer is only expecting what you can give them in a day anyway, so you don't yeah. have to have that great that great hook to it. Um, you don't have you know you don't have to have a great ending, even though you hope for one. You just need to follow that person's life, and that's, that's right. what I did for the day. Yeah. And the reason I did it, Chris, was because. I already planned to go out and meet Elio. Okay. I had, I just knew I wanted to make this my first documentary. In the meantime, um, I saw an article by the Pulitzer Center in Washington, D.C. Mm. They were running a contest to make uh, a three-minute video that was about somebody who's making a great impact in the world ah. that nobody knows about, you know? And this guy, Elio, what he was doing was he was building houses for families of people living in the worst poverty you could imagine. Right. Um, out in the woods, in these shacks, it was terrible. And he would buy the property, build 60, 80, 100 houses. He put all kinds of different, you know, church and medical buildings and things in the community. And then he took these families out of the woods, out of the shacks (laughs) and into these houses. So you can imagine why I was so moved by this story. Once that contest came up, I called Elio and I said, listen, why don't we why don't you help me out? And that's where I got the idea of the day in the life, because that's what they wanted. That was part of the contest. So anyway, I went out there and I followed Elio for a day. Yeah. And uh, that ended up winning the contest. (laughs) One of the finalists, you know. So now it was great because it's, you know, when you're doing corporate work and different things and you don't get that really good feeling much. But when you get that email saying you won. Yeah. and, And it was sponsored by YouTube and Sony. Yeah. So Sony sent like $5,000 worth of video equipment out to me. Fantastic. And yeah, and it was it was really it was a great way to get started. So that is how I got started. That was my first documentary. That's a that's a great story, Jack. I, I actually hadn't come across that in, in the research I'd done. So so thank you for sharing that with me. In fact, uh, um it that that's wild that that it, it and, and, and we'll get into this, of course, here in, in a little bit. I'm realizing now this whole housing thing is 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 a thing for you. And it's a cause, obviously, that mm-hmm. you feel strongly about. And you were doing this work uh, early on. So that's that's very cool to hear that. I had actually done some work in, 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 in some similar work in Haiti as well, uh, neighboring mm-hmm. country, of course. Now, was your subject, was, was he from the DR or was he American? 
He was Canadian. He's, He's an Italian guy from Canada. Yeah, so he was Canadian. Excellent. And he, you know what his story is? He went out there on vacation. He mm. retired. He had a big business. He gets out there, goes out there on vacation. Him and his wife take a turn down the wrong path, and they see all these people living in poverty yeah, in the shack. Right. And the guy, this was 20 years before I met him. Mm. The guy went there on his on his vacation after he retired. He bought a house in Florida. He never left the Dominican Republic wow. since that day. You know, he was ready to go retire in Florida like yeah. everybody else does. He's had enough money and he was doing well with that. So and he put all his money and his whole life into building these communities. And he still does to this day. Wow. Over, a thousand, over a thousand houses. Yeah. Oh, incredible. That, that, that's amazing. Great. Wonderful for those people and, and, and good for him for, for kind of, you know, recognizing a moment and, uh, and following that journey, which is, you know, in many ways, not unlike we have to do as, as doc filmmakers with our doc films where, you know, we kind of set out to, to tell a story, but, you know, often if we're not open to the, the sort of twists and turns that a story can take and, uh, as a doc filmmaker, um, we might miss uh, we might miss an opportunity for a great story. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, a big part of the reason, of course, I've had you on the program today, Jack, is to talk about talk about this idea of creating a, a, a creating a doc film with this little device that we all have come to know and love and adore, called yeah. the iPhone, and and. It's certainly you're you're generating some some press with this. You're finishing up on your film uh, Brothers, and this was shot entirely with with an iPhone. She's trying to put words in my mouth about drinking, about being depressed, all this bullshit. She goes, I, I, I can get you into the program. Social service rigmarole. You put us somewhere, take what little belongings we have, and the rest of the stuff will be either stolen or, or sold. We're here on our own for three and a half years without any trouble. The opportunity, Jack, I can't pass it up. I'm not gonna pass it up. He just left. He never said goodbye. He never said anything. He never said, oh, hey, and uh, I won't be back here again. I'll get through it. I'll, I'll, find, I'll find my way again. But I, I, I'm going to miss that guy. There was a dream. One day I could see it. Well, what happened was this. I, I was finishing up Destiny's Bridge, my documentary. That's a feature film. It took yes. me about years to make. I was finishing that up. And that's a, that's a film about 80 homeless people living in the woods in Lakewood, New Jersey. And I spent years and years, it seems like, there with the people and then in post-production and everything everything else that followed but the film was finally over and a friend of mine called me and he told me about two friends of ours who we grew up with who happened to be living in the woods in the same town that oh, we grew up in okay. that's Cerville New Jersey right so he thought of me when he heard about it and yeah. he really called to say hey what can we do yeah, to help yeah. these guys and um, I certainly had a lot of experience in that and that's why he called me and I says well let me go out and see them and I haven't seen them for since high school maybe 20 years 30 some years, 40 years almost. I haven't even seen these guys, but I knew where they were at. He knew. My my other our, our mutual friend knew. He told me. Yeah. So I went out there to see them. See them. And um, I went out there with the intentions of saying, "Hey, is there anything I can do to help?" Mm. You know, I got a lot of contacts and know a lot of people who couldn't help you guys out, and I'll do whatever I can cuz I lived 10 minutes from where they were living, right. you know. So they were um, and this is out in the middle of the woods in Cerville, New Jersey. So I when I got out there, I 
realized after just maybe the first hour I was there that I need to film some of this. Mm-hmm. I guess it was because it just came I needed to. I don't know. It just came over me because I was so used to it. Well, especially you're so I, used to that environment, too, and, and dealing yeah. with that subject matter. And, and, and they were doing everything. They were living the same way as Intense City, except for the same way in, in some senses. Another way, they were alone, though. Yeah. Tent City, the whole community had a whole bunch of support. They were alone. So anyway, I had told them a little bit about my documentary back, you know, experience. And I says, hey, do you mind if I film a little with my phone? <laughs> and the re- and the re- and they were fine with it. And the reason I did that was because I wanted to know. I knew I was teaching a course on documentary filmmaking called DIY documentary filmmaking. Yeah. And I was I knew that this was going to lean towards f- iPhones. I'm not one of those huh. people who knows every button on their iPhone, everything about it. Matter of fact, I'm the opposite. <laughs> I just turn it on and use it the best I can. Yeah. That's how I made this film. I didn't use any apps. You know, they got so many apps for the iPhone for filmmaking. I didn't use any accessories. This whole thing is held in my hand as if it was just, that's all I did was held in my hand. With the idea that it, I'll film a little bit here and there, I'll put a little three-minute film together, maybe, and I'll show it to the class. I'll say, "Look what I did! Mm. I was able to capture, show the quality, and show some of the things I was able to do with it." That was all I wanted to do. I never expected to make a documentary. Yeah. But what happened was, as I and I would film. The funny part was, I didn't even know how to work. This was while this has been. I I worked on. I was shooting this film for two years because yeah. I was visiting them for two years. Mm-hmm. I wasn't even familiar with iCloud, how to get your video onto, into the cloud where you could then download it and edit it. I didn't know, know any of that. Right. So I, you're just reliant on the space that you have on yeah, your iPhone unless you've got a laptop to dump it off onto. Exactly. And only <laughs> once did I bring a laptop thinking I might need this. Fantastic. Every other time I went there, I, I filmed about 10 to 12 minutes. And the, and right in the middle of what was happening, the camera st- Put up the thing, no room left, or whatever message. <laughs> That's you it. You're out of space. Yeah. So I'd say, all right, shut it off. And I just stay there and finish what I was meant, what I tended to go there for. I never got stressed over it, didn't care. And then it turned out to be an interesting ending to how this whole film ends. Mm. And I, that was really important to me. And I realized I went into my footage first time I just looked at it. Two years, I just kept loading it into my computer right. and dating it. And I went and watched it all. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. There's so much here mm. in these little 10-minute segments. I had about 20, 25 of them. So that's how the film ended up getting made. I went through them, and then I realized I had a good story, especially the way it ended. So right. um, I put it together and... And, and then I still didn't think a whole lot of it, except for this is pretty cool. I thought, maybe I'll do something with it. I don't know. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I'll certainly use it in my course. And then I sent it to a good friend of mine. His name is Bill Jersey. He's the executive producer on Destiny's Bridge. Okay. He's a guy who's made documentaries for 50 years for PBS. He's mm. won all kinds of awards. Mm. He's a lifetime documentary filmmaker and he's like my mentor, you know? Uh. Yeah. So I send it to him and he was just blown away by it. He wrote <laughs> this thing to me that I couldn't believe. The nicest email telling me how good this film is. And that's when I said, hmm. Because that's what happens. You know that. Yeah. 
when your own film will only move you for a certain amount of time. <laughs> Especially when you're to... looking at the footage for months and years on end, right? Exactly. And I'm, you know, uh, exactly. So that's what I went through. Jack, let's 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 back up a little bit and unravel some of this. So just for clarification for my listeners, give us a picture of what your film setup looked like. I mean, it sounds like it's as stripped down as it gets, right? I mean, are we talking any lens attachments? Are we what are you doing for audio? T- tell us what it was. There was nothing but <laughs> this iPhone in my hand. Yep. That was it. Just the I call it out of the pocket iPhone filmmaking. Totally. Because it was truly out of my pocket. And I just pulled it out just like anybody else would pick up their phone and want to videotape something. There was no external microphones, no lenses attached to it, never used a tripod or any of these selfie sticks things they got out there. I mean, I just put that, just put it right next to its picture of a person holding their cell phone, you know, near their shoulder, next to their head, that kind of area right there. But I didn't just do that. That was that was the general filming. What I found out with that camera was that I was able to use it to – I never zoomed in and out either, by the way. Right. Isn't that something? Tell us about the way, that. Yeah. yeah, the way I did it was I would move the camera in closely when something was I wanted to get close to. Like one had, would do in a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I exactly. And I used that um, – for other things, I mean, I was able to get pans like you wouldn't, you could never get with a camera. Hmm. Like I remember um, following um, one of the guys in the films. He 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 leaned down for something to um, working on his coffee pot or something, and he was from yeah. from sitting all the way up, all the way to the ground. Yes, and I just followed him smoothly. Yes, all I, the remember way down. I remember that shot. I remember the yeah. shot. Yeah, and then all the way back. And you can do that with a camera. It had all of these benefits. But the idea of, you know, so you, you don't zoom in, you bring your camera closer. And what we're what you get out of all this is that a person who is I want people to I want people to feel like they're there. Mm-hmm. And all my documentaries, that's my goal. That's why I keep it raw. I use cinema verite. I want you to be standing there. I want to represent the viewer when I'm filming. So and when you think about it, you are Wherever you are, let's say you're at this location where I'm, I was filming and you were standing there. Yeah. You you would be seeing exactly the way my camera was. Yes. And our, you know, our heads move. They turn, they go up and down. We're, we're not on tripods. So that little bit of hand movement is very natural to your eyes. It makes you feel like you're there. And if somebody said something, hey, look at whatever, and you pan over there, that's what you would do if you were there. You would turn your head. Mm. If you wanted to see it closer, you would walk up to it. So I moved the camera up to it. Right. And what I what I was trying to do, and I think worked in that film, is I make the viewer feel like they are there. Oh, there's Without, absolute intimacy with it, for sure. Yeah, you know what I mean then. Yeah, and, and, and it worked, exactly. So... That was one of the greatest advantages of this um, out-of-the-pocket filmmaking with my iPhone. That was I was so impressed with the results. I really don't know if I want to go back to my pro camera, and I'm serious. Wow. You know, with my next film, because I'm going to lose so much by carrying that big thing around and have so much. You know, and the other thing I want to mention is this: when you go to a, a shoot, 
as a documentary filmmaker, you bring a camera case and maybe a tripod and an <laughs> accessories case and maybe even a sound guy and a producer and all that. But forget about that. Just bringing equipment. You say hello to your whoever you're going to be working with. Hey, how you doing? Shake hands. You start going through your bag. You get your camera out. You get all the settings done. You got 20 minutes of just of this this time that you're not really you're not filming. And oh, the yeah. guy's waiting oh, yeah. and he's wondering and he's looking. I walk in there. I got the camera. I hit the button and we're recording. Hey, yeah, how you, you I mean, doing? you literally hit the ground running. It's it's open the yes. door and you're there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that brings a more realistic, truthful, natural feeling to the film because yeah. they told me already that, you know, when we watched the film afterwards, I watched it with the two brothers and they don't they don't even remember any Cameron being there, you yeah, know, that it truly right. worked. Yeah. So that's important. That's so important in documentary filmmaking, at least cinema verite in sure the stories is. that I like to tell the way I want to tell it. You know, I, I, it's funny. I read a blog pro, a post that you had written on your on, on the, your DIY documentary blog, and uh, I and I couldn't help but chuckle. You mentioned driving to location, and a beautiful thing when when you're driving to location is that you're not worrying about maybe having forgotten the headphones or batteries or or whatever the case. I can't tell you how many times, Jack. I've I feel like it's every probably every shoot, if not every other shoot. I feel like I'm pulling the car over or the truck over, whatever. <laughs> I'm driving and I'm like, okay, I know I did a mental checklist. I know I have everything, but damn it, I'm going to open the boot and I'm going to check and make sure I got everything all over again. It's, it's, it's constant anxiety. And this, it's just like, Hey, just remember to bring your phone. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, and look, if if it was a really important shoot and you had to travel far, bring two phones, you know, bring an extra one. That's the other thing about this. You know, these phones, you can use old phones. You don't have to have the the phone that you use day to day. That's That's what I did. But you don't have to do that. You got to have a bag full of phones just laying around, (laughs) you know, without ever worrying. So that's why that's another reason. Um, I think there are some good apps out there that would be helpful in getting a little bit more control you know you can shoot in 24p and there's a few other things you can do with apps but you know i wouldn't want to go any further you know maybe i'll do a couple apps on the next film but i wouldn't use any accessories or get caught up in any of these other things yeah 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 yeah. let me ask you this any disadvantages that you can think of with this super low-fi approach as opposed to having gear and a crew with you what disadvantages come to mind well, the one we talked about already, the minimal, you know, having only a certain amount of space on your phone to, to film, yeah. to record video. So yeah. that was the biggest problem I had. But it, like I said earlier, it didn't bother me because I didn't I wasn't really that's probably why the film came out so well. I wasn't trying to make a film. I was just capturing things <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and zero stress. Yeah, right. I, I didn't care what was going on. And, you know, even when I ask questions, which I don't normally don't do, you might have saw that in Destiny's Bridge, mm. very little um, communication between me and the, the people in the film. Yeah. But here what I did was I just asked questions. I only if I thought the viewer would want to know if there was something right. really like he finds a lottery ticket and he tells a story. Well, that, that you want to know how much did he get? Ten dollars or a yeah, hundred dollars? Right. You know, so I like to ask those questions if I think the viewer wants it. But other than that, I don't get involved with any um, any talking back and forth. 
would and be. It, uh, and it's interesting. I wonder if you had considered, you know, something that that I thought of when I did not understand the relationship that you had with these guys. I didn't realize that you had known them prior, and in fact, had gone to high school with them. And so when you said that, I thought, oh wow, Jack must have made. He had to have thought at some point, am I going to be in this film, or is my relationship to them? going to be in this film somehow you know a la you know i heard this story about these two brothers that i went to high school with and it's been 30 years and and then they're out living in the shack in 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 the forest out like 10 minutes from my town and i'd had no idea i i'd wondered if you had thought about doing that well it's funny you said that because i originally made this film 33 minutes long Yes. And the beginning starts exactly the way you said it. Filmmaker Jack, you know, found out two friends of his were living out in the woods. He hasn't seen them for 40 years. Yeah. And then I put pictures of of them growing, you know, from high school days. Oh, as I, that. yeah. And then I did a narration. Ah, and, yes. Uh, you know, yeah, because I built up exactly what you said. So yep. I gave a lot of thought to that. Here's what happened. That's mm. interesting. I didn't have a lot of I wasn't real familiar with the short documentary film festival um, system requirements and, for this the length of a short doc. Yeah. yeah. And after I got such great response from some pretty important people in the film industry about how good this this documentary is. Yeah. I started researching and I realized <laughs> that. You know, Sundance and Tribeca and South by Southwest, these major, these top tier film festivals and probably most film festivals, they don't like 33 minute no, shorts. Oh, isn't it crazy? I mean, I've got yeah. I, I, my the first doc that I did was a film that I shot in Nepal and it's a 35 minute film. And, uh, you know, I thought, you know, I, I, I'm same boat as you. I didn't really discover it until afterwards that, oh, wow, this 35 minute film really isn't like it's in no man's land. There's there's no distribution for it. There's no festival platform for it. <laughs> no, and it, it's not. And they like they like even though their their website might say you know under forty minutes is a short. They don't want any thirty or thirty five minute no, films. Not they at want all. Ten, you know they want ten fifteen minutes. Right. Maybe, they want to be able to have maybe. programming for multiple yeah. films of that length. So I said I I did a lot of research yeah. because I really want to give this film a chance to 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 get somewhere. And um, I, I thought really, really hard about this. And I said, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this. You just stripped I'm gonna it all go out. I'm back and, and it, it was painful. Oh, yeah. But I Losing babies right there, huh? Yeah. So I cut it down to, from 33 minutes to 16, more than <laughs> half. Which is and the cut that I've I, seen. Yeah. And I had to get, I had to lose, I didn't have time for that idea to tell the viewer we yeah. were friends because i realized we were old friends that wasn't real important mm. um and then i had to like the question you asked how much am i going to involve myself in this film yeah and and like i said my last documentary destiny's bridge i made a point of not using myself speaking for the most part in the film it might be a piece here and there absolutely and I even filmed it that way. If the person wanted to get into a conversation with me, I tried to turn it around so they kind of talked more and I talked less or I edited around it. Okay, there you go. Very conscious decision on your part. Yeah, so I went into this thinking this is how I work. And then I realized, no, this isn't going to work here. 
Um, and I thought that my voice in the back was working, you know, because remember, I wasn't making the documentary. So I'm saying, hey, I'm just talking natural to these guys. Yeah, right. And all of a sudden when I did the editing, I said, this is going to work out well where I can. And then I was again going to say in the beginning that we're all friends that we got together after 40 years and yes. I found them in the woods. Yep. And then it turns out I put my voice in the film. Not only that, as you noticed, yeah. Chris, I became I directed the, the outcome of that film because I went into the woods the night of the storm that's right and i to save him <laughs> you <laughs> that's know? right I mean, are filmmakers supposed to do that it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rarely happens right so uh i that so if i didn't go there that night yeah before the storm um we don't know how, what would have happened yeah. but that's how involved i got <laughs> yes. and, uh, and it all worked it just shows you you don't want to make you don't want to put yourself in a situation. Oh, no, I don't do it this way or I don't do it that way or it's not going to work. Yeah. You know, you just do it and you'd be surprised. I was I was surprised anyway to see how well that's great. I'm not you know, my voice isn't in it a lot, but, you know, I'm part of this their story or at least part of the film. That's right. In a, in a little bit. Yeah. I, uh, Jack, let me ask you this. Do you do you think and I'm talking about sort of audience reception to a film that is shot on in this fashion that's shot let's say in this case with an iphone do you think that we've become so accustomed to seeing footage shot from our handheld devices these days that 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 maybe we've become almost like more forgiving if that makes sense about less than ideal footage and, and i'm not suggesting that your your footage is less yeah, than ideal yeah. but it's this idea are we becoming more accepting to to to, to footage that's shot in this way well, you know, want to know the truth? I think we always have been accepting to cinema verite. And that's what you're yep. talking about. If yep. you ever watch any of the old Albert Maisel's documentaries. Of course, Maisel's is like, yeah, of course. You know, if you look at Grey Gardens, the film starts where Albert Maisel's pans this room and shooting into these windows and everything goes dark, as you know, when you shoot into a window like an amateur would do. Yeah. And then he... Then he zoom. Then he pans, tilts up, and zooms into the lady speaking into the yeah. talking from the balcony or from the from upstairs or something. And this is so. This is like one hundred and one basics. Like don't do these things. <laughs> but when, when you watch this film happen, you don't take it as oh this guy don't know what he's doing. You no. take it as wow this is real. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so yeah. So I believe there. we always had that. We always had that thing where we connect as viewers to to things that aren't perfect. Mm. See, too many documentaries are overproduced now. Mm -hmm. So you take that raw shooting style, and you saw it in Destiny's Bridge probably. Absolutely. That was purposely. You know, there yeah. are things there that you might have been able to say, wow, why wouldn't, why didn't he cut that out or clean it or take a lock shot or something, you know, but... Nah, this not is really. It's kind of my jam, so... <laughs> but I hear what yeah, you're saying. Like, that's, the, that's the way you needed to shoot that film, in my opinion, aesthetically, anyhow. So it just made sense, given the story mm. and the characters and what was happening in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm glad you said that because that's how I feel as well. Oh, for sure. So that's, you know, on that question, that's how I feel. So so now today, are we more? Yeah, probably. Um, the thing is, it's the funny part, though, of your question there. It's not the equipment. Mm. It is it is the way the filming is done. In my case, in my hand, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. I filmed that whole that whole film um, 
Brothers, my new iPhone documentary with the phone in my hand. And it's got that, what you were saying, you know, people are more comfortable or more used to seeing that. Yeah, right. And yeah, definitely. But remember, the iPhone is being used, you know, now with with lens, new, you know, extended lenses, yeah, and right. tripods and lights. I mean, oh, yeah. You put so many accessories on the iPhone, you might as well just use the regular camera. Yeah, of course, of course, right? You, you lose the, the value of the mm. iPhone. Which is being, you know, as as simple and um, unobtrusive as possible while filming. To me, the great hope is that now these little eight millimeter video recorders and stuff are coming around. Some just people who normally wouldn't make movies are going to be making them, and you know, suddenly one day some little fat girl in Ohio is going to be the new Mozart, you know, and make a a beautiful film with her little father's camera recorder and. For once, the so-called professionalism about movies will be destroyed forever, you know, and it'll really become an art form. That's my opinion. No, I love that. No, that's great. And that's it right there. It is, right? <laughs> and, and you know what? I'm going through this now while I'm teaching teens documentary filmmaking with their iPhones. Mm. I have this course that I've been teaching, and at the end of the course, course we do a film festival and their films are just three to five minutes um and and i had eight kids in my last class and yeah. we, we we you know their families come and all and we have a fill up a room and it's really a lot of fun yeah but these kids are making great films and they're 13 years old 14 <laughs> years old and it's just what you said is really the truth and whoever said it um it's happening and it's you know it's going to happen more and more i believe so what really worked was showing them a simple one camera Albert Maisel's film clip uh, and how effective it was compared to another film. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but it doesn't matter. You know, yeah. with all these graphics and music added and, and they have to tell you, you know, lower thirds of everything going on where Maisel's just lets you just you follow the story. Yeah. Without any of these graphics and lower thirds, no music <laughs> being added, no tripod. And this wasn't about iPhones because iPhones weren't doing video so much. This was a right. few years ago. This was just teaching the simplicity of good filmmaking, how important the story is and how people. And I anyway, I saw the response to, to this little presentation, this little workshop, whatever you want to call it. And I realized that um, this is something that we need to teach more of and more people need to be making simple um, films yeah. than and letting people know you don't need the big expensive camera and the camera crews. You need a good story. With Destiny's Bridge, your, the feature that you did prior to Brothers, um, with Destiny's Bridge, and this again speaks to very much to your DIY approach, you mm -hmm. put together a nine city film tour. Right. First off, why did you decide to put together your own mini film tour and and, and include there? Because there's a pretty wild story here that I'd love for you to share with us about that, how that came to be. Well, you know what happened was once this film came out, you see this story. Could you imagine in any town you have 80 people living in the woods for eight years? Right. This wasn't just right. This is for eight years. So we're going back quite a ways. Um, and. They were always in the news for one reason or another, and it turned out that they were going to be evicted, and this was a heated court battle. So I didn't realize that this story was so hot. You know, to the to the pe people in the community, 
and, and the county, not just in that area, because right. it was interesting. It was always interesting, and they were always in the news for one thing or another. Mm. Well, that worked in my favor. And when I had my premiere, it just sold out immediately. Wow, wow. 350-seat theater. And um, and then all of a sudden, I realized that there was a lot of interest in, in the story. And Because you start hearing about the homeless populations in other cities. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And and uh, it becomes, a, it, it's this is a national issue. Exactly. So once I start doing more and more of this, I'm making all these contacts with people all around the country who are dealing with these tent cities scattered all over. And the homeless the homeless problem to begin with, which just seemed to me in my world getting bigger and bigger because I was paying attention to it. Yeah. So what happened was the film brought so much publicity to the cause and to Tent City that people were starting, what can we do to help? So most of the time I gave over the information to Minister Steve. He was the main character in the right. film and he, he ran the campsite or the, the Tent City um, and he was in charge over there. And he would just do, people would do what they can, but um, every once in a while something big would come along. And, and I was contacted by somebody who said that they wanted to build a tiny house. Yes. Because that's where this film goes to. Um, for one of the uh, one of the guys in the film whose house was um, demolished by a bulldozer, yeah. I took that clip and I put it on, I guess, Facebook, on YouTube and then Facebook, and it went viral. <laughs> Huffington Post ran it. All these other places ran it. Ran it was on the homepage of Yahoo. You know, just took off. And somebody said. We want to build that guy. It's a, it's about an, a 78-year-old man watching his house get demolished yeah. in the woods, you know, in, in like 48 seconds, just seeing his face as they're demolishing his home. So it, it, it moved people. Somebody had said, we will, uh, we want to build a, an organization in Pennsylvania called um, Make It Rain. We want to build a tiny house for Sam. Right, and that's the documentary. Sam's house getting um, knocked down. Ah, oh, that's that, Sam's house. Okay, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, this little video of that clip, which was a brilliant idea of mine, I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> I just thought I was putting it out there, but it helped so much in so many ways. Anyway, back to the point. They build a tiny house, a full-blown tiny house on wheels, and they give it to Minister Steve <laughs> to help him. <laughs> For, for Sam, of course, and to help him promote his cause. Yeah. So now we got the tiny house. We got the film. And I realized, like you said earlier, all the way down the East Coast, there are tent cities, like major ones, getting the same publicity they're getting in yeah. Lakewood. Right. So I, I knew that I did so I did so much with this film. I knew that this was the last thing I had to do. I said, I'm going to reach out to these people and see if we can do screenings all the way down to Florida. So we did like nine cities, I think. Yep. And we went all the way down and one was better than the next. It was just amazing. Um, they did all the work. I, we just brought me, me and Minister Stephen. He had an assistant with him. The three of us, we went all the way down to Florida. They set up the, you know, colleges, sometimes churches, all different areas. We did one outside in the woods by a tent city. Oh, wow. One screen. Yeah. So what happened was uh, it was a great success. It was just bringing more attention to to the film, to the cause, 
to the need for tiny houses, not just for the homeless, you know, and the poor, but for everybody who wants to live a simple life. Well, there's some lessons here uh, for 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 doc filmmakers who want to put together, you know, their own distribution plans, and certainly those that want to put out their some of their own film tours. I would love to hear from you, Jack. What are some ways in which we can help offset the costs of our film tours? Well, that film tour was elaborate because I really pushed it going up, taking the tiny house and going all the way down to Florida. But I started off by doing my film tours local and I called them tours yeah. because we did a the film was complete. And then I just decided, I don't know, we're doing a New Jersey film tour. And I, you know, I did what's called four walling. You yeah. know, we we rented theaters, some cases. Um, and then if you rent the theater, sometimes they give it to you for free. Hmm. One place wanted a thousand dollars just to give you an idea how expensive they could be. Yeah. You know, a big game theater. Uh, we didn't go there, but most will do something reasonable, three or four hundred dollars. And you got the theater for the night. You bring your own people there. They collect tickets. It's ten dollars a person. So if you get thirty people there, you're going to break out even. Then you sell your DVDs and your um, T-shirts, merchandise, you know, right? Right, and then. You're spreading the word. You're getting your film out there. I bring, I bring the. Sometimes I bring the whole crew with me. We'll bring ten, twelve people from the film. Fantastic. All of those people that you saw in Destiny's Bridge, we had them all at one of the our first our premiere. Matter of oh, fact. Oh wow! But even on this tour, then I bring two or three plus Minister Steve and then myself, and we would do a Q and A afterwards. Yeah. So, you know. You, you might just break even if you're lucky sometimes you don't lose money but yeah. you can but you want to contact your theater local theaters or theaters near you want to screen at and tell them what you're doing and see what they'll rent the theater for so that's one way but then you got to get people there and of course in my case then I would try to reach out to homeless advocates in that area right and uh, the other thing is colleges. I had an advantage because Destiny's Bridge was such a, you know, this tent city was so big and had so much publicity for so long that when I started contacting colleges and, you know, you, you write up one email, you got to make it impressive, put the link to the film there and yeah. different things. But you got to look professional and you send it, you send in the same one to everybody. <laughs> then you just got to change the name. So it's not like, you know, and you Send one to every if you send it to every college in your state or in your area, you're going to get responses. And um, we must have been to 12, 13 colleges and they'll they'll pay. They paid around five hundred dollars yeah. to screen it and for us to come out. So that was another way to make a little bit of money. Yeah. And keep the and the kids, the college kids, they just they get, they're so, you know, they're so moved by it. And they, you know, they get in line to take a picture with Minister Steve and they got inspired by it. Yeah, it that doesn't great... surprise me at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, so that was a good run. Um, but uh, um, what was the other things we did? I mean, we, we did them in churches. See, a lot of churches, you've got to figure out what your film is about and see who would get behind it. And that would case churches are always helping homeless people. Right. So, and a lot of churches would come down to 10 city to help, you know, bring food and different things. So the, we had a lot of contacts. It was so, it, I was lucky again, it fell in place because this topic was, um, had a lot of publicity in, in my area, but then in a national way too, because the tiny house movement started right. getting really big at the same time. Right. right. Um, we were doing it. So we were, we were, we were probably the first ones, at least, 
in, in making a film about, you know, the tiny house movement and the and mixing that with the homeless mm. cause. And that was a that was, you know, people hear this, they they get interested, they'll at least give you a chance. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. we were able to we were able to book screenings. Sometimes, again, you pay for the room. Sometimes it's donated, but it worked. Jack, as we wrap up here, let us know how can we see some of your films and also included in that, talk a little bit about the DIY documentary blog. Well, my films are, um, you know what I do? Because I do everything myself, I'm not proud of this, but by the time it's time to go into distribution, I start on my next film. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I run out of gas. That's the only way I could say it. Yeah. I just, you know, I'll give you an example. My, um, you can go to my website, destiniesbridge.com. Right. And order the DVD to answer your question. That's one way you can get to see destiniesbridge.com. It's right there. You can get the DVD. When I have some time, I'll try to get it onto Amazon, you know, and do what I'm supposed to do. Right. But I haven't researched that. I don't know if you've done a show on it. It would be interesting to know the ins and outs of getting, you know, for for independent producers to put their films on Amazon and what kind of things you go through. Absolutely. Um, but I'm going to be going through that process at some point and getting it on there so people could just, you know, rent it and watch it. That would be one thing. But I don't do a, my my distribution is my weakest point. Yeah. No, I, you're not alone, man. You're not alone. <laughs> I, I I think that happens to to a lot of doc filmmakers. It, it makes sense, and um, yeah. and certainly it's going to be a part of our programming that we take a look at uh, moving forward. Uh, Jack, this has been a, a lovely conversation. Um, I think a lot of listeners are really going to get a lot out of this program. DIY is certainly at the heart of, of a lot of what uh, we doc lifers are doing. And so, yeah, you were definitely the man to talk about this. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you, Chris. Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.